All right, so as we get started today, I wanted to begin our time together by asking this question. Do, do you know anybody, do you know anybody personally, or perhaps uh, do you ever, have you ever worked for anybody, or maybe worked with anybody that you know, who you would say is ruled by an appetite? They're ruled by an appetite. In other words, they have something in their life that is such a strong part of their life, it just rules them. And it's, it's, it, could be, it could be consequential. It could have cost them opportunities, relationships that have been harmed. It set them back. It's, it's, it's closed some doors. It's opened some bad ones, maybe. And, and, and what they do, this appetite just seems to, they can't shake it. They can't get past it. It just seems to go, go, govern their lives. They're literally ruled by this appetite. In all of us, if you, you might know them, and you might say, well, if you knew their story, if you could talk to them, you might even say it makes sense based on their upbringing or what's happened to them along the way. It makes sense why they have this. But still, it's destructive to them as they have been ruled by an appetite. Right? Maybe that's, maybe that's close to home for you. Maybe it's someone you know from far away. Here's the thing as we get started in this conversation today is that's the thing about appetites. When it comes to appetites, either you, you rule them or they will rule you. Right? Appetites are natural. We all have them. They're, they're, you know, part of who we are. And they're natural and they're not wrong. But if you don't rule them, they will end up, well, they will end up ruling you. Isn't that true? We've experienced that. On all, on all of us on some level have experienced that at some point in our life. Where an appetite was no longer ruled by us and instead was ruling over us. And sometimes it's in big ways. Sometimes they may be in smaller ways. But all the time, appetites are powerful. So we're taught, and by the way, this happens right here. This happens in spite of our beliefs. It doesn't matter what you believe. Here's the, here's the secret. Maybe you've not thought of this before. It doesn't matter what you believe. You could be a Christian. You could, call your, you, could, you, could, you could believe right. You could believe more right than other people do. You could have the best set of beliefs. You know what I'm saying? Like you're more right than people around you, at your job, in your family, in your house, in your church. You, you got all the beliefs right. You can say the right things and, say, and, and, and defend them and be tenacious about them and yet still be ruled by an appetite despite those beliefs. Because that's what appetites do. You rule them, or they rule over you. And so we're talking in this series together for the next few weeks on the subject of structural integrity. Structural integrity. And the idea of this series is largely about integrity, and we're going to give you an official definition of integrity in a few minutes here. But before we do, let me just remind you our, our loose definition is that integrity is the courage to do the right and noble thing simply because it's the right and noble thing. The courage to do the right thing just because it's the right thing even when it costs you, and especially when it costs you. That's integrity. And, and, we, and we've said it before, but integrity is something that we admire in other people. We celebrate it in others. They're the heroes of the stories we read, the movies we watch, and the people we admire in history or in our life. Is, is we celebrate integrity in others, but, but sometimes we struggle to have it. So we're calling our series Structural Integrity because like the, the bridge in this picture and the buildings in this picture, uh, everything that's built is built to have structural integrity. And structural integrity is the ability of a structure to, to withstand its intended load without, without failing due to, to, due, to, due to fracture or due to fatigue. That is, it's built to withstand a load it's intended, though, that it's built to withstand, and it can do so without fracture or fatigue. It won't fail. 
as structural as having structural integrity in architecture. Engineers understand this idea, right? We understand this idea. We've all seen when that fails to happen, the consequences can be dire. And uh, when, a, when a structure fails to maintain its integrity, what happens is it's, it, it always transfers its load, it's always transferred to surrounding structures, which are then forced to carry its load or crumble. And we made a statement along the way that that's how personal integrity also works. The personal integrity also works to be something that if we fail to have it, if it gives out, if we give out under our intended load, that that load ends up transferring to those closest to us. People closest to us that we care about very much carry the brunt of our failures of integrity personally. That it adds stress to their lives when our integrity fails. That's called a single parent dealing with someone else's failure of integrity or a child in a, in a, in a, this, of a dysfunctional home or a parent whose child broke their heart or a, a employee whose boss did something unethical. It could be a thousand scenarios. But when we fail to have integrity, that load is transferred to somebody else to bear and it puts stress upon them. And so like with structures, it's important that we understand that our integrity doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. Because integrity, integrity is personal. People say, well, Arlen, this is a personal subject. If I have integrity or not, it's none of your business. It's my life. And I understand that integrity is a personal issue, but it may be personal, but it is not private. It is not private because the things that happen because of our integrity or through our integrity impact those around us and those closest to us. So integrity is a big deal. And uh, we gave this verse last week to start off our series. Our key verse is found in Proverbs 11 and verse 3. And it goes like this. It says, the integrity of the upright guides them. But the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. So the integrity, that's our subject, our, the integrity of the upright guides them. We asked, we asked the question last Sunday, what is it that guides you? Is integrity a guide or is integrity simply a tool that we use to get our way until it gets in the way and then we throw it away? But is integrity our guide? What is it that guides us? The integrity of the upright guides them. And that word upright is so important for this whole concept of the series. The upright person is the person who's not bent over or crooked. They're not bent over and looking down. The person who's not upright or standing up straight, so to speak. Like your parents say, straighten up. When we're, when we're upright, we're taking the long look. When we're bent over, we're looking at what's right in front of us. And when we look at what's right in front of us, we make decisions about the now, the temporal. Because this is what looks good now. This is what feels best now. Uh, I, I don't want to do this now, or I do want to do this now. And, and, and we don't think about where that may lead us, because we're not looking at where it may lead us. We're looking at what matters now. But the upright, those who are standing up straight and taking the long look, Right? Those who are taking the long look see where paths take them. And the integrity of the upright is a guide to them. But the unfaithful, those who are, are, are pulled away from that to look at the temporal, are destroyed by their duplicity. Duplicity because they might be making decisions based upon the now, but they believe themselves as a person of integrity, even though we're not acting in integrity. And they expect integrity out of others. We all expect integrity out of others, even if we don't have any at the moment. And that duplicity can be destructive to our lives when we get unfaithful. But the integrity of the upright, well, that guides them. And so we've been talking about that last week and this week. And uh, if you missed last week, we, we went into a lot more about that. You could follow, find that online at our website on video or audio. And I encourage you to go back and check that out. Anyhow, for today, I want to give you our kind of official definition of integrity for this series. We've got a couple more weeks to go. 
But for this week, uh, we want to give you our kind of our official working definition of integrity, and it goes like this. Integrity is doing what you ought to even when it costs you. It's doing what you ought to even when it costs you. Now, that's, that's simple. That's, we kind of already said that, but that's putting it on words so you can take it home with you. In fact, would you even join me in saying this out loud? Let's all say it together. Ready? Integrity is doing what you ought to even when it costs you. We're going to try that again. And if you're online, you can say it from, your, your, uh, from wherever you are online. If you're in a coffee shop, you know, maybe say, say it a little quieter. I don't know. But if you're online, say it out loud. And if you're in the room, let's try it one more time. Ready? Integrity is... Doing what you ought to, even when it costs you. That's integrity. The re- and, and, and we know this and we believe this, so why don't we do what we ought to, even when it costs us? Again, we admire those who do. Those are the books we read, the stories we like, the movies we watch, the heroes of our history, the people in our lives we respect the most. We admire it in others. We expect it. We expect it in others. We celebrate it in others. So why don't we do what we ought to even when it costs you. And it's why we talked about appetites at the beginning. You're like, what did appetites have to do with this? Because if, if the story of our, of our life is a story that could be guided by integrity, then guess who the villain of the story is to our integrity? Our appetites. Our appetites pose a constant threat to our integrity. They constantly challenge it because our appetites are challenging us to not take the long look, to not be upright but to look at what's right in front of us. So we're going to talk about appetites today because we have to address the villain if we're going to maintain integrity as a series. Today's the story about dealing with that booger called appetites. So now when we mention the word appetites, probably most of us think of the big two. The big two appetites that we think of are usually food and, does anyone want to say it out loud? Food and sex. Food and sex are often kinds of appetites right? We get appetites for them. And, and, and those are very common ones to mention. And I think someone mentioned substance abuse also, right? Those are, those are easy ones to think about sometimes, and those are appetites. By the way, I'm going to list some other appetites that we might not always think about. I might list some appetites that we might overlook because we think of the big ones. Before I list the other ones, let me say, if, 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 if those ones I just mentioned, if that's where you're struggling today, by all means, don't drown that out for the rest of the sermon. Because whatever it is, what we're going to discuss today applies to that appetite. But it's not just the big ones that we like that. It's also a lot of appetites that we might almost justify and not think of in, in negative terms. Like this is for other people, but not for me. But what are some appetites that we all have to wrestle with? Well, let me give you a list of several of them. Appetites can include the appetite for acceptance. Oh, we want to be accepted, don't we? So bad we just want to be accepted. Intimacy, inclusion, respect. It's an appetite that drives many people. Recognition, fame, right? Progress. Oh, progress is a big one for a lot of us. We're just driven by progress. It's just something we got to feel. It's how, it's how we measure a lot in life, progress. To be envied. Many of us, we have an appetite. To, we just want to be envied by others. An appetite for stuff, more stuff, new stuff, just stuff. Responsibility, achievement, winning. These are some appetites that we have that we might not think about in, this, in the topic we're talking about. But these are appetites that are not necessarily bad, but what happens is they can be villains in the story of our integrity. Do you understand? 
So before we go any further, I want to kind of give you a couple, three statements about in integrity as we get going here that will kind of set the stage for the story we're going to tell in a while. Three things about appetites. The first one, we all believe, um, if you are a, a Christian or even a, de a deist or a theist at all, a monotheist, we believe this as, as, as theists and as Christians. Number one is that appetites, that God created them and sin distorted them. That God created them, they're not wrong, they're natural. Every appetite we have is from God and it's natural, but sin, sin distorted them. Like most bad things are good things done in a wrong way or good things done in a wrong time or good things done in a wrong scenario, right? I mean, most of it are good things mishandled or misdone and that's why they become bad. That's why people, people defend sometimes some bad behaviors. They're like, well, God created that or God did this or that's how it is. And we're like, we're not denying that God created certain things, but we distort them by how we use them, and those become appetites that sometimes control our life and impact those around us tremendously. Appetites. God created them, sin distorted them. The second statement, we all believe the second statement, or we all know it intuitively, and that is this, that appetites can ne are never fully or finally satisfied. Appetites are just never fully or finally satisfied. Like, you know, if you, we mentioned food earlier, that's an easy one. So if you have an appetite for eating some really unhealthy food, but you just really love it, it's just your favorite thing, but you know it's not good for you, you don't wake up the next day and say, I don't need that anymore. Or next week, I don't need that food anymore because I had it last week, so I'm all good for the rest of my life. Right? When you look back at having it last time, it's more like, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that because, ugh. But, I still want some more now. I mean, because it's not like you, you know, if you're struggling with sex addiction or pornography or something like that or, or uh, things on that path of uh, gratification, people don't sit there and say, I don't need to indulge in that. I did that last week. I'm all good for it for the rest of my life. Because it just comes back. It comes back. And that's true for all the less ominous appetites. Achievement, progress, all the things we mentioned earlier, all of it. You know, stuff. They're ne never fully satisfied, never finally satisfied. In fact, there's one word that we think about, one four-letter word we think about when we think about appetites, and that is the word, anyone want to guess? It's the word more. I want more. That's what appetites say. We want more. Right? But here's the crazy part. We think, well, not, I'm not wrong. I just want a little bit more. But here's the, people all over the world today and other places would love to have the things that we have, right? To live where we live, to have what we have, to go where we go, to do what we do. They would just love that. But our appetites tell us, yeah, but th that's not enough. I want more. That's what appetites do. They drive us for more. More stuff, more achievement, more things, more. More. And number three, the third thing about appetites is this, that appetites always whisper now and they never whisper later. They never say, oh, someday. No, the appetites say, hey, now, now, now. Because appetites are not a fan of delayed gratification. They don't like that. Who wants to do that? That's, that's a good thing to do. A lot of things in life that we should have some delayed gratification. That's what keeps us going forward, helps us make good choices. But appetites don't like that. And so we struggle. And because of that, as I said earlier, our appetites pose a constant threat 
to our integrity. And we want to be people of integrity. We celebrate people of integrity. We respect people of integrity, right? We want to be those people, but our appetites pose a constant threat to our integrity. Now, I've mentioned some, several appetites. Let me kind of go back, because again, there's some of them that seem good, but they can be bad. So let me mention a couple good appetites that can be used bad. Appetites like achievement and advancement. I understand. Achievement, boy, that's a big thing. It drives a lot of us. Advancement, right? I just want to get, I'm going somewhere, I'm doing something. Achievement, advancement. Fine. But again, God created it, sin distorted it, right? What happens is, appetite says now, not later. Do what's best today. More. Never takes the long look like the upright. And so the question we have to ask when we're facing any appetite, whether it's the ominous ones or whether it's things like achievement and advancement in our company, in our family, in our social circles, the thing we have to ask ourselves when we're faced with a now moment is we have to ask ourselves this. Will my integrity guide me or will my appetite guide me? We've got to answer that question every single time it emerges. Now, to help us, we're going to do something unusual at the end of the service today. When we get down to our quiet time at the end, we're not going to do it like we, exactly like we normally do it. We're going to have quiet time still, but I'm going to invite those of you in this room to participate in a special way and, 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 and maybe make, make a bold step. Our worship team is going to stay off stage for a little bit for, at first, and we're just going to invite you to make a bold step if God is calling you to do so. To, to, to just step forward and be a person of integrity. We'll do that at the end, and we'll explain that then, if you, if you want to. But for now, we want to tell a story today that will kind of set the stage for what we're talking about when it comes to integrity and its great villain of appetite. And the story is found in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew scriptures. It's a story from ancient Israel, one of the forefathers of the nation, the grandchildren of a man named Abraham, who his grandsons were two boys who were twins, who were born together. And their names were, anybody? Right. Esau and Jacob. Now, exactly what we all say, Jacob and Esau, in that order, because of the story we're going to tell today. That's why we, we say Jacob and Esau, because of the, today's story will tell us why we say that. But actually, originally, you would have said Esau and Jacob because Esau was the firstborn. And you mentioned the firstborn first. They were twins, but Esau kind of came out first, had the firstborn. And you say, well, what's, what, what does that matter? Because in that culture at that time, there was this big old thing about being the firstborn that you received what they called the birthright, the rights of the firstborn. The birthright. We have nothing like it in our modern day for us in Western cultures. And we would, we would rebel against it if we did. We would not like it if we did because of what it meant. Because in that time, a birthright uh, meant several things. If you were the firstborn, you got certain bonuses. For example, when dad passed away or, or passed on his inheritance, the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. Now think about that for a minute. That means if there were just two kids... That means that double portion means that the older one got 66 plus percent of the inheritance and the other one got 33 percent of the inheritance. Do you see what I'm saying? That's a big swing. 
How are we doing now? It must have gotten loose. Whew. Sorry, the online people. You missed some important things that will change your life, and it's too late now. Sorry. Have a good life. I'm just kidding. So Esau and Jacob, and they had this birthright. And again, the birthright gave you double portion of the family stuff. If you're born first, you got double portion of the dad's inheritance. That's a big deal, especially when you have 100 kids. All of a sudden, you know, double means a whole lot more. On top of that, if you were the firstborn, you got something else as well. You got um, the family blessing. The father's blessing over the family was considered to be God's blessing. It was a big deal in, those, in that culture. Very big deal to have the dad's blessing. And the third thing, and this is kind of a weird one here, is you got judicial authority. Basically, the firstborn, once dad was gone, whenever there was a family dispute or matter, the oldest child had the opportunity to decide all matters fully and finally as the final authority in, in, in dispute. They'd hear the case and say, here's my judgment. Now, how many of you are the firstborn in your family? Raise your hand if you're the firstborn in your family. That's kind of a good deal right there, right? Yeah? Judicial rights, double portion of the inheritance, right? That sounds good. Those of you are saying, nah, that's not such a good deal, right? But that's how it worked for the, well, for the firstborn. They had a birthright. So Esau, the oldest, and Jacob, his brother, are the center of our story today. Now, as we lay that stage, the story takes place, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, Genesis 25 will also be on the screen up here. But we're going to look at Genesis 25 and see the story of Esau and Jacob as they grew up. They were different boys from each other. As moms and dads, we all know our kids can be very different from each other in certain ways. And we start the story in verse 27. It says, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. Okay, that's Esau. But, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. So they're different, aren't they? Like Esau, rugged outdoorsman, hunting. Jacob liked to kind of be inside, do his indoors things. And he has other, he has other, other interests in life. They're just different. Now, if your mind goes there because you see family dynamics, this might, next verse might make sense to you in light of that. Verse 28 says this. It says, Isaac, the father, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. But Rebecca, the mother, Rebecca loved Jacob. So they had favorites. And boy, this right here is a glimpse into, into dysfunction. You know, kids are tempted anyhow growing up to think there's a favorite system in their parents' house, even if there's not, and there shouldn't be, and there's not. But kids tend to think it. Some kids think I'm the favorite or they want to be. Others are always like, I'm not. It's proof. Everything's proof. Maybe it's a middle child thing. It's always proof that I'm the overlooked one. I don't know. But, um, but they think there's favorites even when there's not. But how sad that that bad thinking is reinforced by parents who actually do sadly have favorites. That's not good, right? And in this story, mom and dad had different favorites. Dad says, I like Esau. Go out there and kill it, drag it home, and bring it to me, you know? I like that kid. And, 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 and Jacob, my, my mom loved Jacob. He cooked, he did a lot of things at home. They just had their favorites. And this right here is a whole different sermon about a whole different level of dysfunction in the story that we don't have time to get into any deeper than that. But that's the backdrop. Well, verse 29 tells us what happens. One day, 
One day when Jacob was cooking some stew. So how many of you guys like stew? Right, you like some stew? I mean, if, you're, if you like some stew, raise your hand real high. You, how many of you are fans of stew? Okay, good. If you like some stew, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness and he was exhausted and he was hungry. Right? How many can exhausted and hungry? There's a modern term, probably from the Hebrew, that we translate with this right here. Today in modern usage is called hangry. How many of you get hangry sometimes, right? Like you're like, man, I am beyond hungry. I'm so angry. Like you just, dude, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Get a Snickers, right? I mean, I'm exhausted and I'm hungry. That was Esau arriving home. And as he walks in, Jacob is cooking a big old pot of stew. Well, Verse 30, and by the way, before I get to it, let me just say this. This is how appetites work. Right there in that verse on the screen, is that you're seeing an appetite is engaged. And if you want to understand how appetites work, don't miss the next few verses because there's a psychology going on here that can explain so much that happens in our own hearts as well. Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. I'm starved. Right? Your kids ever say that to you? That's, that's Esau, except for he's not little. He's not like seven. He's grown. I'm starved. Really? So you're picturing like someone in an underdeveloped nation whose skin sticks to their bones and their belly's bloated, starving. You're starved? No, no. I'm just really, really hungry. But you know, when, you're want, when your appetite's engaged, it's It's dire. I'm starved. Give me. And, and if you read the, the, the Hebrew and some translations even say the word quickly. Quickly. Because that's what Epidate says. Quick. Now. Now. Quick. 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 Give me some of that red stew. That's what he's looking for. That's what he wants. Right then and right there. Now, this. How many of you are younger brothers and sisters? You're, you're, not, the, you're, the, you're the younger sibling. Raise your hand real high. Okay. Okay, this is that rare moment growing up when the younger sibling has leverage and power over the older sibling. You know how rare that can be, right? Like all of a sudden, you got leverage over the older one. Boy, when those moments happen, you take advantage of that, don't you? Because, wow, it doesn't come along often. That could look a lot of different ways. For example, that, that, here's what, how that might look when you were growing up. Oh, so you don't want mom to know how late you got home. You, you don't want her to know. You don't. Okay. Okay. What's that worth to you? Right? That's how you play that game. What's that worth to you that I don't tell mom what you don't want me to tell dad or mom? What's that, what's that worth to you? Right? That's, that's how you have leverage. Those are nice moments when they come, younger brothers and sisters. And you know what you do in those moments? You bargain. What can I get? What can you do for me? And usually you start high. Like a good salesman, you start high, you aim for the moon, and work your way down. So for many people, here's what that, depending on your age difference, the next question might be, well, okay, fine, I can keep that secret, I can help you out, can I drive the car? Right, that's, that's, that, when I was growing up, I was, I was old enough to drive, my sister was 14, I was 16, I could drive. She's like, I want to take me to drive. You're too young to drive. Come on, just go around the block. So I did, she got in the car, I got in the passenger seat, 
Okay, here's how you drive. And she got to the first corner and she stopped because there's a stop sign. But then the next corner, there's no stop sign. So she just turns without slowing down and realizes that it's going way too fast and she doesn't know what she's doing. And she lets go of the steering wheel and screams. And we go into the field across from it, hit the stop sign on that side of the road, knock it across the field 40 feet, and land between two trees, both sides of our car, this far from our car, and stop in the middle of the field. We're both those, okay, get out. I'm sorry. I was going to be sorry because I had the keys and I put her in the seat, you know. But that's what you do. Hey, I got the leverage here. I want to drive the car. Well, maybe you can't. But that's okay. Then you work your way down. Okay, fine. Then take me and my friends somewhere we want to go. Okay, right? So, so here, here's uh, Esau. He says, I want some of that stew. I'm starved. And Jacob's got the leverage. He's got the power. So Jacob decides, you know what? Go big or go home. <laughs> you know, just, just why not start high? And so Jacob actually says to Esau, he says, all right. Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. What? Trade me your birthright. Okay, that's a little intense. That's a little crazy. It's like aiming high there, Jacob. Your birthright, like literally double the inheritance. Give that to me. All the judicial authority and power and dad's blessing, yeah, give that to me right now for this. How's that? That's a good starting point. We'll work from there. Now, listen, that's intense. And that's, that's in, as in crazy as the story is, what you'll see next, if you're, if you're self-aware, we can relate to it. It's the psychology behind our bad decisions. Because what Esau says next in verse 32 is this. He says, look, I'm dying of starvation. I'm dying of starvation. He, he just walked in from hunting. He was on the side of the road laying there for three weeks, you know, dehydrated. He literally just walked in from hunting in the fields, but suddenly he's dying, dying of starvation? <laughs> Here's Jacob. Really? You're dying. I see that. So what's it going to be? I'm dying of starvation, Esau said. And then he adds this. He says, what good is my birthright to me now? Isn't that what we do in those moments? It doesn't really matter. This, this thing, that, this, this later thing doesn't really matter. What good is that? What good is my birthright? Can't fill the empty belly? What good? And by the way, don't miss that last word. What good is my birthright to me now? Isn't that what, that's appetite speaking. What good is my birthright to me right now? And, and here's Jacob. It's no good to you right now. It's not any good to you until dad dies. And he seems pretty healthy. That's a long way off. Who, who knows when that will ever come? It's no good to you. Now, that's appetite. Appetite says, what's right, what's right now? But remember, later, is longer. And the integrity of the upright, the integrity of the upright, it, it guides them. They look beyond now and they look to later and say, hey, that's coming. Later is coming one day. Because here's the thing about now. And this is going to be so deep, it's going to blow your mind. So be, be impressed, be ready to be impressed. Now is now. And now, now is gone. Isn't that crazy? Deep? Let's do that again. Now is now, and now, now is gone forever. But later, well, later is longer, isn't it? Later is to come. 
What good is it to me now? What good is my integrity to me now? Opportunities for later now. Now. That's the question. So Jacob has an opportunity. I'm not even sure he imagined he'd have. Unless he knew his brother was this crazy. But in that moment, he's like, whoa. So Jacob's going to capitalize. Verse 33, here's what he says. First, you must swear, because he knows this is a big moment here. Whoa, he's going he's to give me the birthright. Okay, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. Now, don't miss it now. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling his, all his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. That's insane, all right? That's, you're hearing that story, and if you're, if you're tracking, you're like, that's insane. But you know what? Here's, you know what we all know? I'll bet. I'll bet at some point in each of our lives, someone stood over you, a parent, a mom, a dad, brother, sister, a, a fr- coach, a teacher, a friend who loved you, stood close by you watching you make some decisions in your life and looked at you and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's insane. What are you thinking, Right? At some point in our lives, maybe it's right now you're in the brink of a decision and people who care about you are like, what are you thinking? And it only seems insane to those who read the story later who are standing nearby. But when we're in the moment and our appetites are engaged, it seems perfectly justifiable. Now. At some point we've all been there, haven't we? Verse 20, verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. That's what it was all for. A bowl of stew. He even tossed in some bread. Why not? Hey, here's some bread to go with it. He gave him some bread and some lentil stew. And Esau, this is what happens. Esau ate the meal and then got up and left. And now is no longer now. It's now past. That's what happens. He got up and he left. In other words, he walked away and said, eh, ain't no big thing. Ain't no big thing. In fact, here's how the verse ends in the last half of the verse. It says, he, Esau showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Isn't that kind of a strong word? He showed contempt or he despised his rights as the firstborn. That sounds strong. But here's what that means. That means he showed contempt by saying, it's just not that important to me. This meal right in front of me is more important to me than that. And in doing so, he was showing contempt for it. He was saying, I don't care about that down the road. I care about what right now. And in thinking that way, he was showing contempt for his birthright. So we do when we make decisions about now. We show contempt for the things. That, when we compromise our integrity for the, for the appetite, we're showing contempt for our integrity because it's not that important to us. What's more important than our integrity is our appetite. So we can say our family's important, but what's more important than our family can be our appetite. What's more important than our, our, our uh, reputation, our, 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 our character, those who are affected by our decisions, that's less important than now. And we show contempt. Esau showed contempt. And, and here's how that works. This is so important to understand. You show contempt on the front end and oftentimes also on the back end. In other words, Esau walks in and says, Oh, Bert, that's, what good does that do me now? Takes the food, eats it, and walks away like, eh, no big deal. Whatever. I don't care about that anyhow. 
I don't care. Right? That's what happens to us. We walk into our temptations of appetite and we say, the future down the road doesn't matter. I want this now. And then after we do it, the temptation is for us to circle back and defend it because of some kind of cognitive bias or dissonance that says somehow I've got to defend what I've done, otherwise I've got to admit that I was wrong. And people have changed their entire belief systems about a lot of stuff out of a necessity to defend their past behaviors instead of admitting it was wrong. They just change everything because I can't possibly cognitively say that was wrong. So therefore, that wasn't wrong. And anyone who says it was wrong is just judgmental and whatever. We just change our whole view of life to defend our past decisions cognitively. Isn't that, I'll be, I'll be honest, as a pastor, it's exacerbate, it's hard. Because you minister to people. And sometimes you're like, hey, listen, don't go down this path. Don't engage the appetite. Don't do something you'll regret later. And, and you hope that those of us who have made those mistakes would look back and say, yeah, he's right. Trust me, I've done that. But some people look back and say, how dare you say that to them? Quit being that way. It's okay, and that's not wrong. We'll change our whole belief system to be whatever so that we don't feel bad about the things we've despised that we can't undo now. And it's like, what are we doing? And here's the thing. If we're not careful, we'll walk away and we're never truly ourselves ever again until we're willing to be honest. But it's hard to be honest in the face of appetite or in the face of regret. And, and, it, and it gets to us. It makes us make bad choices, doesn't it? In fact, in fact if I could say it this way, Esau... Esau demonstrates to us in the story that our appetites can make us act stupid. Right? It can make us act stupid. Like, what are you thinking? I don't know. I just want my, I want what I want. It's a temptation. Before and after. Now, I want to appeal to you today as we get ready to wrap up. Our appetites compete with our integrity. I'm talking about integrity this next couple of weeks, and I wanted to take a week here and talk about the villain. The villain is our appetite sometimes. God created them, but sin distorted them. They're never fully and finally satisfied, right? They want more. They say they whisper now. They never whisper later. They don't like delayed gratification. Our appetites compete with our integrity, and worse so, maybe even more so, our appetites compete for our future. For our future. Like with Esau. And with you and with me. And so today, we need to wrestle this to the ground. We need to sit back and, and have a conversation that maybe is uncomfortable in the moment of temptation. Because again, we can read the story of Esau and say, what a crazy person he is. But at some point in our life, all of us have had someone nearby who loved us looking at us and saying, what are you thinking? And maybe some of us are there today. And maybe it's a big, bad, ominous appetite, but maybe it's something a whole lot simpler than that. It's advancement, achievement, winning, progress, respect, stuff. Things that don't seem so bad, but they drive us to think of now instead of later. Appetites. Here's what I want to ask you to ask yourself today. Here's our question for the day. 
What is your bowl of stew? Now, it's a very good chance that without me even reiterating that question, you're already thinking of exactly what your bowl of stew is today. You know. That you're sitting here saying, you came into church today ready to go home and you're going to have that conversation with somebody that was going to break their heart. Or you're going to go indulge in that behavior that would upset somebody. Or you're going to make that phone call or do that thing. And you're sitting here today saying, how did Arlen know to, to, to talk about this today? Your husband called me and told me. No, that's not, not something happened. No, no. What happened is, is that's all of us. That's all of us. That's every one of us. That's what happens to us. We, we get engaged in the appetite. That's me. What's my bowl of stew? I got bowls of stew. Do you? What's your bowl of stew? And it's easy to say, stay out of it. You don't understand. Mom and dad, you're crazy. You don't understand. You don't get it. You've never been my age. Oh, wait, never mind. You don't get it. That was a long time ago. Or your friends, you're not really my friends if you're standing between me and what I want. YOLO, you know, whatever you want to say. But what's your bowl of stew? And here's what we're going to do in a minute here. We're going to have, I think just Michelle's going to come up to play the piano in a few minutes here. And we're all going to just, I'm going to walk off stage. We're going to stay empty. I'm going to invite you to have a moment during quiet time. Invite you to have a moment with you and God. We always say pray in your seat, whatever else. We invite you to pray however you want to. But I'm going to invite somebody here today or maybe a couple somebodies here today, if you're so brave and bold, to do something a little extra. And that is to step out of your seat. We've not had an old-fashioned, what we call, altar call in a long time. But maybe today is a time for an old-fashioned altar call where you can step out of your seat and come to the front and take your bowl of stew to God in prayer. And it may be a big, ominous thing, maybe. It might just be something like achievement and advancement and winning and progress and envy and stuff or a thousand things that I didn't even mention, but God's Spirit said, you know what it is. What's your bowl to stew? And you say, Arlen, you're inviting us to come forward? Well, what, are people, what would people think if I came forward? Well, first of all, the rest, all of us should be in our, have our heads bowed and eyes closed so no one should notice. Second of all, good people are cheering for us, aren't they? I'm cheering for you, you're cheering for me. Do you want us to, to win? And we know no one's perfect. No, you don't think I'm perfect. I don't think you're perfect. No one's here pretending that anyone's perfect. What we want is that to see they have the courage to overcome. We're cheering for each other to make the right decisions. So good people are for you. And if someone thinks otherwise, well, that's their problem, not yours. But by, by the way, is that the appetite we struggle with? The appetite of what will people think? Isn't that one of the problems we struggle with in our faith journey? Is worrying about what someone else might think? I'd encourage you, if God is speaking to your heart, you just said, God, say, God, it's you and me. What will my family think? They'll forget before dinner's over. They're just hungry. But you know that something about stepping out of your chair and coming to the front and saying, God, here's my thing. Maybe a small matter, a big matter, but it's, a, it's something in my life that is challenging my integrity. And I want to take it to you. And I just want to sit back and say, I'll deal it later. I'm coming right now and saying, God, Here's my bowl of stew. Help me. Not sacrifice my future on the altar of the immediate. And here's what I actually want to encourage you to say. To God in prayer, to yourself, here's the commitment I want you to make today. That I will not trade 
what I value most for something I have an appetite for now. God, that's my prayer to you today. I will not trade what I value most for something I have an appetite for now. It's not worth it. Because now is now and the now is gone. But later is longer. Lord, help me to be upright. Help me to take the long look in my family, in my business dealings, in my every part of my life. Help me to take the long look, to be upright. And I will not trade what I value most for something I have an appetite for right now. And if God is speaking to your heart in just a moment after I pray, I encourage you, I'm going to come to the front, I'm going to pray. You say, why? What's the big appetite you're giving to God? None, none yeah, right? None of your business. No, I'm going to come to the front and pray for, uh, for me. I'm praying for you. I'm going to be praying for our church, for those online. If you're at home, make an altar by your chair, by your seat at home if you can, wherever you are. But I'm, I'm going to pray for you. I'm praying for that one person who needs the gumption today to make a big decision that will impact the rest of their life in a good way. For those two people, those three people, somebody, if one person amongst us has helped, well, it's all worthwhile. I'll be praying for you here. If you want to join me in prayer, I'll pray with you. If you just want to come to the front and pray like I am, take it to God. But what's your bolus to? Lord, I will not trade what I value most for something, however small or big it may be, for something I have an appetite for right now.